if you're in a high stakes environment and you're doing okay or better than okay, no one wants to change anything because the risk of changing something and not working is you fail and you can't afford to do that. But if you're failing, people are like, now's the time. Like we can't do anything any worse. We're at the bottom of the league. We've had the next three years, first round draft, the last three years, first round draft picks. We're rubbish. So let's do something different. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most in applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Oliver Finlay. Oliver, or Ollie as I know him, describes himself as a passionate and enthusiastic sports performance professional with over 23 years' experience working in top-flight national and international sports. He works to help high-performance sports organizations and elite sport professionals achieve sustained success that's aligned with their unique visions and help positively develop lives through the medium of sport, health, and well-being. His first career was a physiotherapist, an athlete, a coach, and a trainer, and a performance director, and he's worked at the highest levels in a variety of sports, including in both kinds of professional football, high-level hockey, rugby, basketball, Formula One, tennis, swimming, bobsled, and canoe slalom, which I will admit that I had to look up for this intro. Aside from all of that, he holds a PhD and is the founder and managing partner of the Beautiful Game Group, a purpose-driven sports investment company operating in growth sports all around the world. Now, in this episode, we take a deep look at what makes his successful culture, drawing on Ollie's deep experience in sport across multiple domains. We get into the pillars of elite teams, how large organizations change, the creative power of failure, and somewhere along the way, we even describe the Finlay coefficient, which is a mark of team cohesion and shared vision. I always learn a ton from talking with Ollie, and you're going to immediately see why in this episode. Before we get started, a reminder, if you're enjoying what we do here at the Emergency Mind Project and you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and you can sign up at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, if you want to help support our work here at the Emergency Mind Project, consider contributing on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash emergencymind, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash emergencymind. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Ollie, man, it is so great to see you again. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I don't think we've had a time where we haven't had some fascinating conversations, walks and talks through Chicago or brainstorming phone calls. And yeah, thanks for sending the memo on the shaved head, the black t-shirt and the (laughs) And the stubble, we're in, we've got our uniform. <laughs> For those of you listening on audio, Ali and I have unintentionally matched every facet of our personality in order to do this podcast more effectively. It's certainly a conscious choice here. Let's jump in. Uh, Ali, for folks that don't know you, that haven't had the pleasure of meeting you and being in your presence for one of these awesome talks that you give, what's your deal, man? Who are you and what's your story? Basically, I'm a chap that's traveled around the world Fortunately, through the opportunities that working in sports given me, grew up in the UK between Scotland and England and trained as a physiotherapist as an undergrad. And then as soon as I started working straight into sport and sport had always been my passion. I played lacrosse from a young age and was fortunate enough over the years to to travel with that and become captain for my country. And really, I wasn't desperate to be a physiotherapist. I was just desperate to do something that kept me in sport. And I wasn't good enough in a sport that was, it was professional to allow me to get paid to play. And so 
in that journey, really, I worked for 23 years at the coalface of, of sport and I've got a great deal of curiosity. And so I started out in football or soccer as for the North Americans listening to this. And quite early on, I went to work for the Football Association, so the England national teams. And our department, our sports science and medical department at the time was, we were pretty far in advance of any other country in what we were doing and what we were looking at and how we were teaching it as a governing body. And what I noticed was that the football world and the football industry related to sports medicine, sports science, sports therapies pretty much evolved in line with what we were teaching. We would hold the conferences, we would hold the courses. And so go figure that's how the sport developed. And I then just got really curious as to how other sports were developing. And so I made a pretty intentional choice along the way to go and discover different sporting environments. I worked in rugby, I worked in Formula One, I worked in tennis, I worked in track and field, the NHL, I worked in basketball, did some consulting with football, American football for those of you that aren't American, bobsleigh, and just a whole different field of sports. And I, I came to be the guy that if someone had a random assignment in Thailand or Istanbul, or I'd be like, yeah, I'm there because I was just really curious. And along the way, I did a master's in sports physio. Then I did a master's in status physiology just because I was really interested to see how things came together in a holistic way. Because a lot of times in these environments, and it's the same in sport as it is in missing critical teams, you see these silos. And over the years, you start to realize that that's not the most effective way of working, getting the most out of some great minds and great people. And so I wanted to be able to understand the thinking and the language behind different disciplines. And I worked as a physio, I worked as a driver trainer in Formula One. I worked as a performance coach really in tennis. And then became a performance director. So overseeing all of the sports, medicine, sports, science, psych, nutrition, how these disciplines related to player load management coaches and how you could tap into talent ID for, um, for recruitment for the channel managers. And then latterly, whilst I was in my last role in the NHL, I did a master's. I was traveling over every month for a couple of days to do a master's in sports directorship and just got interested, like fascinated in team dynamics, culture, change management, and really started to look at the overall organizational aspects of a sports team, not just the performance side. And so I got offered a an opportunity to move to Vancouver and do a PhD. And fortunately, I had the autonomy to ask the questions I was interested in. It wasn't a PhD where someone said, you've got to go and investigate this and look at that. It was literally, what are you interested in? Go after it. And that started to go more and more towards the business side and the culture side and away from, there was one chapter that was on multidisciplinary sports medicine, sports science teams, but then it started to get into real organizational dynamics and objective markers of sustained success in teams. And so I had 
the good fortune to interview like 70 team owners and CEOs and general managers and really look at it from that side. And so I then got into sport investment and sports enterprises, which I'm currently doing. And so it's been a long and varied journey that goes where my curiosity takes me. Basically. So much to unpack there. Part of the reason I'm so psyched to sit down and do this with you. Sitting for a moment with my feet in the medical world, I'm immediately struck by how you're describing all of these other universes that on the surface are so far apart from each other. Medicine Formula One versus hockey and everything else are very different, although they share a lot of similarities. But one thing that sets everything you've described apart from medicine, and maybe this is a good way to wedge us into some of these conversations, Mm. is that all of those teams you're describing consider it normal to have coaching and mastery level coaching around how to get better. The idea that these people who are at the absolute top of their game are still learners, are still being trained, and they're pushing the edge of how to get better on a pretty consistent basis. Medicine doesn't really have that in the same way, right? It's not our culture to push in the same way to have that going. Now, certainly there's training and there's school days where I'm working at almost every large academic emergency training center. There are school days where you come together and learn from each other and around each other. But there's not the same devotion to self-improvement and team-level improvement that I see across all of the different domains that you're talking about. Where do you think that comes from in sport? Why do you think that's more there? And I guess as a follow-on like 101 level question, like what is sports psychology and sports performance? There's a number of questions in those statements that in those questions that I almost would flip it and say, what is it about the medical world that stops us doing that? And there's a really interesting book by Matthew Syed called Black Box Thinking. And he raises a great point and it's literally the first chapter. It's the first thing he goes to. He compares the airline industry, the aviation industry to the medical industry. Over the years, the airline industry has adapted and evolved to create a culture, an industrial culture that is curious, doesn't blame, takes accountability and shares information. And they had to do that because there were some pretty big disasters and things were going fairly wrong and they were losing the confidence of a lot of passengers. And they looked at why that was happening. And there were several factors, but one of it was hierarchy. So no one would ever question the captain. And they looked at all the problems that were contributing to this lack of learning from disasters and systematically took it apart and put systems and processes in place that really facilitated the learning of mistakes and the interrogation of questions to be able to improve on a daily basis. When you look at the medical industry, his comparison on that was that the medical world is a blame culture. And if something goes wrong, people try to hide behind generic terms rather than define actually what went wrong. So if someone dies in theater or in surgery, they died as a surgical complication. So that doesn't really tell anyone anything. And as a result, you can't learn from mistakes very well because it's all sort of smoke and mirrors to a certain extent. And one of the reasons he suggested that might be the case is because medical students pay a fortune 
an absolute fortune for their education. And so in acknowledging that you're making mistakes, it's almost like saying, well, I paid all this money for my education and yet I'm still not perfect, right? <laughs> and so you put that on top of the fact there was also historically been a hierarchy of the consultant puts themselves above the registrar, above the house offices, above the nursing staff. And so again, you have that reluctance to question higher up the hierarchy. And then there's the sort of God complex that can occur. And so you have a number of these factors that stop people from owning their shit and being accountable and responsible. And so if you create that thinking, if I'm going to continually get better, I'm acknowledging the fact I don't know everything. And so I don't know if some of these sort of historical, psychological, the deep rooted sort of factors contribute to the fact that people at the top try to tell everyone they know everything. And so what more can they learn? Whereas in sport, you are continuously on a journey and there is no higher. You can't say that wasn't my fault when 20 million people around the world have just seen you make that mistake. There's no hiding place. You've got to put your hands up and say, that's on me. And so you have to continually drive to get better and people recognize you getting better. Look, if you're a surgeon and you make a mistake, no one's subbing you out for the next surgeon next week because you did a bad job. If you're a coach, you're getting fired. If you're a player, you're getting better. And it's an inherent part of the sporting world is if you don't improve and you don't get better, someone else is and they're going to take you less. This is really interesting because you're approaching this from a different direction than I was expecting, which I love, which is that you're really talking about how the culture around a group shapes the behavior of the individual in the group and vice versa. We talk a lot about how like individuals build the culture and the culture sets the norms and the culture nudges things in certain ways. But this is a sort of the opposite direction saying, what does the culture allow or make easier or harder to happen for individuals to improve or not improve? The other thing I also see is there are always outliers. You're not a generic person I see in meds. You, you are a curious mind that asks lots of questions and is constantly on that path to learn, which I think is why we get on so well. I do see geographical differences. I've obviously worked a lot in North America. I've worked a lot in Europe. From my training, I look at how my training was very different than someone going through similar training in North America. This came to me when I was hiring in the NHL. By definition, I wanted to hire problem solvers. I wanted to hire people that saw challenges, rose to them, and looked at things with a very open mind, understood the theory, but could critically evaluate the situation and then reflect on what they'd done and their practice and come up with a different answer and be creative. And I actually don't think the US education system promotes that. And as part of my curiosity, I ended up taking some exams in the US, took a massage qualification. I took a strength and conditioning qualification. And those exams were so different than any exams I'd ever done. So in the UK, growing up, the exams you took, you had to answer essay questions. You had to problem solve. You had to demonstrate reflective practice. You could have an essay question that was 20 marks and you might've got the final answer wrong, but you had to show your workings. And in showing your workings, you might've gotten 13 marks because your thought process up to this point was right. And then you took a wrong turn and your problem solving skills let you down at a certain point. 
or you could have got the right answer at the end, but if you didn't show your work and you didn't get full marks. And as a result, that teaches problem solving, that mm -hmm. teaches you to interrogate your systems thinking and your process thinking. Whereas what I saw in North American culture, in North American education was go away and learn this book. It was already seven years old and you know how long it takes to get a book published. So the information in that was probably three years old. Don't dare think about best practice and what you know now from reading the latest scientific journals. Just learn the book. Because if you put down the latest information, you're going to get the mark wrong because it's not going to give you the answer that's in the book. And everything was multiple choice. And so that doesn't test my problem solving. That doesn't test my reflective practice. That doesn't test my go out and find the latest information you can get and tie that into your current understanding and thinking of the theory and how that may evolve. That teaches me, you have an ankle sprain. Do you put ice on the ankle sprain, heat on that ankle sprain? La, da, 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 da. And so it's very difficult to come up with comp complex systems of thinking. And that for me, I see more people that are a little more curious and a little more biased towards problem solving and reflective practice outside of the US than I do in the US. And I think the education system has a lot to answer for on that. So we're looking at teams and cultures that can perform well in different environments. Mm -hmm. And we're highlighting one of the successful virtues of those teams or values of those teams as being problem solving, curiosity, and flexible thinking. We're saying that teams need those things to succeed. And then we're saying, what is it that brings those qualifications or those virtues out? And one of the things is what questions are we asking people along the way? How are we educating people in order to do that? What else, when you look at the different teams that you've been involved in across the successful ones that you've worked with, what other virtues or values stand out to you as the pillars of the most successful teams and cultures? And then my follow-up question, if that's not enough for you, if curiosity and the thing we're looking, linking it to is the types of questions we ask, what are the things that are underneath those values and virtues? I'm going to put a little context about this before we get going, maybe to give you another second to think as, as I'm watching you process that question. Previously, one of the things we've talked about with Dr. Felix Ankel on a prior episode was the idea of artifacts of culture, right? So one of the ways that we build culture, one of the ways that teams build culture is they create artifacts. These are physical or written things that sort of serve as guideposts and protectors of culture along the way. I'm not sure saying this out loud, if the types of questions we ask on an exam are technically artifacts of culture or not. The way we're using them in this sentence, they probably are in that yeah. they're a thing we produce that reinforces what we value, even though they might not be done intentionally. In any case, I'm curious if we can wander down that path together a little bit. What are the virtues and values of successful teams and cultures? Where do we think they come from and how do we build artifacts that support those? Again, I wish we had days in the series of podcasts <laughs> to talk about this because this stuff is just fascinates me. I'm going to go to one key thing first and then we'll delve along the way. So the best organizations and the best cultures I've worked in and seen are the ones that have a clear vision that everyone's united behind, a clear mission of how they're going to get there, clear strategy as to how that map's going to look and the objective that they're going to reach and measure everything against, along with shared values that everyone buys into that are acceptable. And the same thing on, from a behavior standpoint, what's the acceptable behavior is. And they've identified the why they exist and 
what they're doing and their just causes to what they're striving for. In doing that, you help pull everyone in the same direction. Everyone can see where they're going and everyone can understand that they're part of a collective that together is striving for the common good. Where the worst cultures I've worked in are the ones where that first thing fails. There's no vision. So I'm going to give you an example. So I worked in an NHL team for this point in time, it'll remain nameless. And it was the worst culture I'd ever worked in. And it wasn't because the people were bad people. There were some wonderful people there. The owners were lovely people. And that should have driven everything else, but it didn't because they hadn't outlined a clear vision. So no one really knew where they were going. So therefore you don't know how you're going to get there. And as a result, it's human nature that you then go, I've got to go somewhere. I've got to be striving for something. So you start to follow your own personal agenda and you become very self-centered and self-focused. And as a result, you don't look out for the greater good and the greater collective and you're part in that because you don't know really what that is. So I came into that and I remember having a great conversation with the site that I bought in and said, look, I know we need to develop a culture here. We need to unite our department behind something. And she said, yeah, but you've got a problem. Your problem is if you start to create a culture, you don't know what the owner's desired culture is. You don't know what the GM's desired culture is. You don't know what the head coach's desired culture is. So if you start building a, a culture is a powerful thing that people unite behind. What if it doesn't land with the key leaders in the organization, you're going to have a problem. So I was unable to create a culture because I was worried it might be counter to, you know, what the other culture might be. The other problem to that was, and I see this a lot, is if you don't have a shared vision and shared objectives, you don't know what success looks like. So I had an ownership group that wanted change yesterday. The quicker, the better. What are you going to do here? We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like the other. I had a general manager that in some cases wanted change. Yes, get rid of that guy. I don't like that guy. He's not a fit here. And, you know, you've got to bring this sort of people in, that sort of people. Then I had a head coach who was brand new with new coaching staff who was like, don't change everything all at once because we're changing a lot on the coaching side and I don't want to destabilize everything. My shortfall in that, my shortcoming in that was I didn't have the experience at that time to recognize I am set up to fail here because my best chance I'm going to make one person happy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have satisfied one person's vision of success. But by default, the other two people are not going to see that as success. So what I should have done and what I would do now, or having had that experience, is get them all in a room and say, we've got to come up with a common definition of what success looks like here. Because at the moment, I can't keep you all happy. And as a result, the further down the chain you go, the more ambiguous things become and the less people know what success looks like. And so you get, in sport, you already have a culture, an environment that very quickly people become insecure, very quickly people become scared because there's inherent ongoing change in an organization. And so when you get a lot of scared people that are very insecure and have big egos, because sport is, there aren't very many shrinking violets there, you've got a recipe for a toxic culture. And so that sort of gives you an illustration of where those things are.
so critical. So what I'm hearing you say is that one of the key pillars to a successful culture is a, a homegrown, agreed upon, central vision. Yeah, absolutely. And those values have to be shared as well because the research shows that it doesn't matter really what those values are, what those defined values are, but they have to have come from within the group. It can't be the leader saying, these are our values because people don't honor those. They don't mean anything to them. They can't internalize them. It's not part of that. But as long as the shared values are identified, they're more likely to be lived. And there's nothing worse. We've all been in those organizations where the values are on the wall and you look around and you're like, I'm not seeing them being embodied in any way by anyone, except for maybe one person. Is that, well, that person obviously put the values out there. Now, if I look at a great example of this, one of the guys that was on my committee for my PhD, a guy called Dr. Angus Mugford is phenomenal. He's probably the best performance director I know out there because he understands people really well. And he was also supported in his organization by president and a GM that bought into, they shared the same vision of where things were going. Now, whenever you go into a sports team, the more and more I speak to other performance directors, and from my experience when I was a performance director, it's a five-year process. It's a six-year process. Change is always difficult. Sport is full of, we've always done it this way. The costs are high of, for failure. And so if you're doing all right or you're doing well, no one wants to change anything. Failure is great because it gives everyone a clean sheet. So we've got to change something. Can't be any worse than what we're doing already. Can we go back to that? Failure is great because it does what? It creates a blank canvas. People know they have to change something because they're failing already. So that's the perfect time to start looking at what to do better. If you're in a high stakes environment and you're doing okay or better than okay, no one wants to change anything because the risk of changing something and not working is you fail and you can't afford to do that. But if you're failing, people are like, Now's the time. Like We can't do anything any worse. We're at the bottom of the league. We've had the next three years, first round draft, the last three years, first round draft picks. We're rubbish. So let's do something different. And that was the situation I walked into is I walked into an organization in the NHL that had been bottom of the ladder for, they haven't made playoffs and they still haven't for probably going on 15, 20 years. So that's a good time to, to change. But Angus went into this, it was in a different sport, it was in Major League Baseball, and they recognized, they said, look, this is a 10-year process. We know along the way, we're going to get peaks and troughs. At times, it's going to look like it's a disaster, but as long as we know where we're going and we trust the process and we identify where we're going and we identify what our shared values and our mission, we've got our objectives. We know we'll get that. Now, the first one, two, three years, it looked horrible, but it always does. Change always does. There's a great paper by Costa, and she talks about the messy middle of change. And I love this because there comes a time in any initiative that you've pushed off from your safe haven. And that was great because everyone was enthusiastic that we were doing something new and we were going to be, we were going to change the world. But you're not close enough to, the end result that you can see land 
and you're in this messy middle of change where you can't see one and you can't see the other. And you've got this situation where the practices you used to do, pe most people have stopped doing them. Some kind of a clinging on to them a little bit. Not everyone's integrated into what you're doing now and you get a mess. Now, the best leaders recognize that this is going to happen because it happens invariably. You, it does not happen. The best leaders recognize this is going to come, prepare everyone for it, and trust the process and stay the course. And that's what that team did. So five years into the process, six years in, I went to visit Angus and he said, you've got three days, you can go speak to whoever you want. And I was blown away. I spoke to maybe 40 people from junior performance staff to senior coaches, performance directors of system performance directors, farm team directors. I was blown away that in a sports team, without fail, every one of them knew word for word what the values were. They embodied them. And each of them told me, this is what I'm working on personally this year. I recognize I did this last year and I need to improve that. My goodness, like the lack of insecurity, the confidence that someone had created such a psychologically secure place that they could admit to their failures and also they knew they were supported in how to improve that. The challenges had been laid down. They were accountable for it. This is yours, own it, but we'll support you to improve it. That created a really strong culture, a really strong culture. On the flip side, again, I go back to my NHL experience. I didn't have the experience at the time to say, we're going to get to the messy middle of change. A year in, you know, and there were other reasons that contributed to this as well. I get a meeting with the president and he's like, we've got to change direction. And we were banging that messy middle of change. To the extent that I actually thought we were just coming out the other side of it. But it was that lack on my part to tell everyone at the beginning, this ain't going to happen overnight. There are going to be times that you're going to look at this probably six months to a year down the line and go, what have we done here? This looks all right. Mess. And again, it's funny. Sport is defined by ongoing constant change. And yet, so in, in the US and in North America, to be an accredited change management practitioner, you have to go through the ProSci courses. ProSci started out as a statistics company. So they've kept data on change management for years and years. And every two years, they launch a book on it. And in that book, one of the statistics is a breakdown of the industries and the number of change management qualified change management practitioners in the industry. They didn't even have one person from sport, not one person that has done an official accredited change management course. I was blown away and really came to the fore when I was doing my PhD and I was interviewing all these people on this topic. And my goodness, there was, the answers were all over the place. And some had successful change initiatives, but it was more by luck than judgment. They couldn't have told you why it worked and then to go and repeat it. And these were good people. These were experienced people. And I think it's like any industry from the outside looking in, 
it's this magical industry where everything's amazing. There's a lot of money in it and there's a lot of profile in it. But actually when you peek behind the wizard's curtain, a lot of the times it's really not as pretty as it looks from, from the outside. So yeah, I think that's again, a very interesting sort of look at a look at things. Yeah. I'm hearing curiosity, flexible thinking, problem solving, a common vision the translation of that vision into the human realm. What is our vision as a team? What does that mean that I, as a member of the team, need to be focused on? Yeah, th that communication is critical. It's got to be communicated in everything you do. Because, and again, I go back to a mistake I made in that role. My performance department thinking and vision and whatever, that's been going on in my head. And I've been developing that over 10, 15, 20 odd years, right? I go to a new organization and so much of that is internalized for me and it's automatic and it just makes common sense because of all my experiences that I have. What I omitted to do was keep telling everyone that and relating every email, every meeting, every conversation back to how this ties into the big bit. And one of the top three reasons why change initiatives fail is because of, of under communication of the overarching vision that really hit home. When I sat back and reflected on what went right and what went wrong in that role, I was like, damn, I just assumed or forgot that other people don't have that inherent understanding of where we're going, because that's been built on my experiences. You then put on top of that another layer, which I love talking about, and that's in sport, like in the medical world, uh, in mission critical teams, you often have people from different backgrounds and cultures. Now, people say we shouldn't stereotype, but stereotypes are a good indication of our cultural upbringing. So you were raised as a boy in North America. I was raised as a boy in the UK. Someone else may have been raised in China. Someone else may have been raised in Thailand. And whilst not everyone is the same, there are certain societal behaviors that are the norm and how we are educated. And so when you put people in a room together that display these different experiences growing up that fundamentally develop significant parts of who they are, and we don't acknowledge that, we've got a serious problem because it can be something as simple as time management. It could be something as simple as how someone responds and gives negative feedback, their leadership style, how people make decisions. And all these things are so inherent to team working. So if you turn up late because you're from a culture that being on time is somewhere within that hour or two, and that can be some Middle Eastern cultures, and yet. I'm German, where timekeeping is to the minute, I'm going to think, bloody hell, Dan's so disrespectful. Doesn't he care what we're talking about here? And then you turn up and I'm a bit off with you and you're like, God, that guy's so angry. Like, what, what's his problem? You know, who rained on his parade? Or when it comes to negative feedback, classic case in point, the American style of giving negative feedback is I give you three things you're doing well. And then at the end, I say, but can we change this, please? That would be great because I don't want to offend you. A friend's person would come away from that going, 
Dan thinks what I'm doing is wonderful because he's given me three things I'm doing really well. And there was one thing at the end, but it really doesn't matter because he thought I was doing those first three things really well. A Dutch person would go, Dan's a bit wet behind the ears. You can't just tell it to me straight. There's a problem. Give me some direct feedback, man. A Thai person would be mortally offended because you just called them out on something. And I made that mistake when I worked in Thailand. I had, I think, I was working for a soccer team as a performance director. We were in South Korea for a big intercontinental game, massive game, biggest game in the club's history. I had a number of Spanish players on the team. Most of the players were Thai, a Swiss guy, an Italian guy. So we're the day before the big game, we're in the gym and people are screwing around. Now, I've worked in rugby, I've worked in British sport, I've worked in American sport. What do you do? You read them the riot act. This is the biggest game in our career. You're screwing around. People are paying to come and see you. There are people who have invested to get you here. You're letting them down. The Spanish guys are like, yeah, we'll own that. Swiss guy, yeah, no problem. The ties looked to me open mouthed like I could have stolen their firstborn child. And it wasn't until after that I was speaking to some of my friends who were from America and they were teaching in Thailand. And they said, we can't fail a kid on their exams. They could put the wrong name at the top of the paper and not answer any question. We have to give them 50% because in telling people they've failed, you're calling their character into question. And that is just something you do not do. So if you then relate that to a situation in a medical team or in a mission critical team or in a sports situation, you've got to be aware that the way people behave and respond to your questions or your way of leading, it's nothing personal. It just, they don't have a reference point from their societal upbringing. And so we've got to be able to say, okay, this is how I make decisions. This is what I expect of a leader. If I came in as a leader and told everyone what to do in Norway, they'd think I was an idiot because there's a more egalitarian way of leading a team. If I went to Russia and brought everyone together as a group and said, let's make this decision together, they would think I was a soft touch because they want in that society a dictatorial leader that tells us what to do and then I know what I'm doing. So we've got to be very careful to make that effort to understand and not try and inauthentically take on someone else's societal ways of working, but at least to recognize it and be able to have that conversation to say, I know you come from a different way of doing things. Like, how can I help you improve when it comes to negative feedback, for example? How can I give you that feedback in a way that's going to help you improve rather than put you on the defensive and get you offended? I've got to meet you halfway. Alia, common thing that you and I work with in some of the rooms we've been in is the difference between intact teams and swarm teams, right? Intact teams are things like football team that you're describing in Thailand. People were selected, trained, they work together, they've all moved together to this universe to tackle a problem set and play this game. A swarm team is more like what we face sometimes in the emergency department where a group responds, there's an unexpected cardiac arrest in an area that's not typically the cardiac arrest area. And so a group descends on that together and they try to tackle that problem set without any or much preamble and then disperse back to their normal universes. A lot of what you're describing about taking a careful and measured approach through different styles of learning and feedback and growth 
which is another way of saying, how are you going to build an elite culture out of a team? How does that apply when you're also working in worlds that are more swarm-like or more liquid? It still applies because effectively, you may come from different corners of the hospital, but if the hospital has done a good job in building the culture of the organization, you're already on the same page. And so that's critical. I think the other thing that, you know, if I look at any organization that fails systematically and the ones that succeed, communication, communication, communication is the key fundamental pillar. So how do you communicate? How clearly do you communicate? How often do you reiterate what you're trying to communicate? And how do you do it in a way that is engaging and enabling, but without being completely dictatorial? So I I think that's absolutely critical. So if you've built the right culture in your organization, and it's one of curiosity and learning, your staff are trained. They're trained how to react in this. So it's the old military saying is you fall back to the lowest level of your training in times of stress and pressure. The sentiment there is you have to have trained how to operate as a member of a swarm team. You can't just be thrown in there. So ideally, ideally, all of the time you are actually thrown into swarm teams and that creates its own layers of complication and stuff. does, but it, again, that's where your debrief afterwards sure, sure. comes down to, I behaved in this way, but actually I didn't know any better. Okay. That's a recognition that it's on me to go and be onboarded or to chase that person that was supposed to have organized that training session for me and didn't. And I think there's the other key value and attribute we've got to say is humility. I'm not going to get everything right. I am learning just as everyone else is. And I think it's a mindset. If you go into any swarm team environment, say, I'm new to this team, this occasion today, this scenario, and there are going to be things that we do right. There are going to be things that we do wrong. What can we learn from it? And I'm not going to be, no one's going to be perfect on there. And I'm the first one. And it's very much like me going from one team to another team and saying, this worked perfectly with this team and building this performance department. And so you go into the next team and try and do exactly the same thing and replicate it and go figure it doesn't work because there are different people involved, different characters involved, different contexts that is dictating how things play out there. So keeping that questioning, keeping that open-mindedness, keeping that curiosity and keeping that intent to learn from everything. I think it's critical. It just helps you be adaptable and flexible in, in any environment. This has been awesome. I, we've wandered through this amazing path about how to build elite cultures that succeed under a variety of circumstances. And I think we've identified like substantially more problems than we have solutions to them, which is fine and a great place to start. As we come to the close of this wave of stuff, I want to give you a space to issue a challenge to folks. Anybody listening to this who is interested in improving their own performance under pressure, who's interested in building their team, the culture of the community around them, whether they are at the point they are up to and including the leaders of these teams and cultures, what do you want them to try differently after listening to this? So I think a great exercise for any team to do, and this is one that when I'm brought into teams, I love doing because I 
it's one of those things you know the answer, but you know, or you know what you're going to find from the answer. But I always love the reaction because it's so simple at the, at the same time. Is if you ask each individual person, you get a, your team together and you ask them to write down what the vision of the organization is, what the mission is, i.e., so where are we going? How are we going to get there? You don't need to go into the strategy because only certain people will necessarily know that. What their objectives are. So what are they being measured against? What are the KPIs? And what are the shared values and behaviors that are accepted amongst that group? Now, a great team will have almost the exact same things written down on every piece of paper. Mm. The majority of teams, it'll be all over the place. And it'll be that person's interpretation of what they see it and perceive it to be. And that, if those are wildly different, those perceptions are reality. Because that's what each person is working towards. It's such a simple exercise, but it is so telling. Is there a name for that? Is there a name for the relative level of cohesion of mission across different? No? Awesome. We're going to coin this as the Ollie metric or the Finley coefficient (laughs) or whatever you want to do for that, man. This is like stamped in time right now. This is the Finley coefficient, right? (laughs) To talk about what percent of your group is able to independently agree upon the same vision or or thereabouts. Because that's the definition of a team, is you're working towards a group of people working towards the same challenge. And if you're not working towards the same challenge and you're not doing it with a shared set of values, how do I know that I'm going to offend you because your values are not the same as mine and we've not agreed on these? So at some point, there's going to be a real problem. And I always say in the right environments, in psychologically secure environments, failure is acceptable and the way we move forward and learn when it comes to technical and tactical things. But if the values and behaviors have been discussed, defined, and all agreed upon, there has to be very low threshold for failure when it comes to not adhering to the values and behaviors that the group has set. So you can make a technical and tactical mistake and you know what, we'll support you till the cows come home, we'll sit down with that and look at where, how we can improve, you can improve and develop. But if you fail the group on an agreed values or agreed behavior area, failure is not acceptable there. That jeopardizes the team and that can contribute to a psychologically insecure environment where everyone's affected. But the problem with that is if as a leader, you haven't gotten everyone together and there aren't shared values and shared behaviors, you can't call anyone into account other than yourself and not having gone through that exercise. I've got so much to think about walking away from this. It's, they, these are always fun conversations. Every conversation I have, I, I take something else away from it and go, ah, yeah, that fits in there. That sort of refines that a little bit. And it's a fascinating topic. And mm. do you want some, I've got st- a few books by my side. Do you want some book titles for people? Oh yeah, fire away. Yeah. Let's get a reading list wrapped into this. You get, you guys are get, getting a bonus listening to this. Here we go. So your societal, cultural norms. The Culture Map by Aaron Mayer is a must read. I think this has been my most gifted book of the last two years. The Barcelona Way by Damien Hughes. That goes into building cultures, the key part of building a culture. He talks about cultural architects. He talks about the vision, the mission, the behaviors. Great book. 
for any brands there to lead. Vulnerability, humility as a leader and bringing people on the way with you and talks a lot about psychologically safe spaces. Mission critical people defer more to a psychologically secure space. I don't need to bring team of teams out, general standing, because mm-hmm. everyone's got that. Belonging, Owen Eastwood, is gold dust. So this, again, if you as a member of a team don't feel a sense of belonging, that triggers all sorts of psychologically insecure behaviors. Bill Walsh, the score takes care of itself. Again, is the favorite, talks about standards and again, defining what your shared values are and you said some trillion dollar coach for leaders out there by Schmidt, Rosenberg and Eagle again, looks at building teams and what people need to feel as though they belong and how they can succeed in this. The, the captain class, interesting one, Sam Walker. So he looked at, he did an exercise to basically identify the top 10 most successful teams in world sport of all time and looked at basically the one constant in that was the style of leadership of the captain. Very interesting. And then the last one, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, for me, by far and away, his best book is juicy detail all the way through from first page to last on that. And again, it just always look at this and say, you can't win football. You may win five championships, but you're not going to win every championship all the time in every game. So it's okay. We're not playing zeros and one game on that. We're looking at long term what's driving us to improve and what's driving us to get better as a group. That's some of my last, most fun books of the last couple of years, I think. Ali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's a joy to have you. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.